Let's pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And all of God's children said, Amen. I know you heard it when Nancy read it, and I know you saw it up on the screen. Right there at the very end of the text from Jesus. It's a provocation. A provocation of all provocations. It's a flashing neon sign. It's too in your face to avoid. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Really, Jesus? Everything? I mean, there are exclusive clubs that are around the world where certain country clubs come to mind where they demand a six-figure initiation fee and those members presumably could afford it. But what club demands everything, everything of its members? After hearing from Jesus, I think it's safe to say the Church of Jesus Christ is that club, is that place. There's an old song a jazz standard that talks about all or nothing. Many artists have recorded it, including the legendary Billie Holiday. It even gave its title to a 1984 movie with Steve Martin and Lily Tomlin. And in that comedy, through some strange magic, the soul of a dying woman is transplanted into the body of a living man. Each one controls half of Steve Martin's body which of course makes for some great comedy, especially when they start talking to themselves in front of people. That movie and the title of the song, All of Me. The words from the song go, all of me, why not take all of me? Can't you see I'm no good without you? Take my lips, I want to lose them. Take my arms, I'll never use them. It hardly sounds like a real healthy relationship if you really stay close to the words. This person is desperate. They've been spurned, they're infatuated, and they just want to have that person back, the object of their devotion. The character singing the song seems a little bit pathetic, you might say, but clearly the opposite of Jesus' call. That's what that is. It's the opposite of Jesus' call. So that you're clear-eyed, that you're intentional about who you're called to be. What's our Lord asking of you and I as his disciples? I mean, we've heard all of the ancient biblical understanding of the tithe, that's 10%. Is Jesus really upping the ante? Instead of 10%, he wants 100% as God's portion? That's for another sermon, but the first part of this passage lays out an uncompromising demand that aren't financial at all. If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Man, is that harsh? Is Jesus really saying we have to hate? Is Jesus really saying we have to reject members of our own family? And what's this about hating life? Do we as his disciples need to be walking around mumbling to ourselves about how much we hate living or how much we hate the life that we're living? Are we to walk around like spiritual sad sacks all the time? With all this hate? Who imagined that in walking through the doors of this perfectly respectable looking church 
that you would be asked to put at risk all that you hold dear. But as the tagline goes in the commercials, but wait, there's still more. Jesus says, whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. I mean, think of every gruesome detail of what happened that Friday that you've ever heard. The nails, the spear, the crown of thorns, the blood, the labored breathing, all of it. Is Jesus really saying that is required? I mean, it's pretty clear from what follows that Jesus wants to make sure his disciples know exactly what they're getting into when they follow him. He wants us to count the cost. He tells the story about the person setting out to build the tower, but without any planning. The streamer gets a hold of some stones, starts setting them one after another in place, row upon row. The foundation of the tower starts to take place, and the walls start to go up. But then the project comes to a screeching halt. Why? Because there isn't enough money. So the foundation sits there month after month, year after year, No way to move forward and certainly no way to go back because that's not an option. You need money to demolish it too. What did the builder have in mind the day he started that? Jesus doesn't say. But he does point out that the half-built tower has become a a monument only to the man's foolishness. On a hillside above the charming seaside town of Oban, Scotland, sits an ominous gray granite structure known as McCaig's Tower. But it has a different name that the townspeople have given it, McCaig's Folly. Passengers waiting to board the ferry to the sacred isle of Iona can look back over their shoulders and see this circular stone wall looming over them that kind of looks like the ancient Roman Colosseum. But through its gaping windows, you can see nothing but the sky. It's nothing but a shell. This massive stone monument was never, ever finished. It was started by John Stuart McKaig, a wealthy banker, and he thought of the whole project. You do have to say that on Mr. McKaig's behalf, he did, in fact, count the cost before that first stone was even built and put in place. The tower was supposed to cost 5,000 pounds sterling, which in our terms is about a million dollars in our money today. He started work in 1897 and continued until 1902. And that's when Mr. McKaig dropped out of a heart attack. Part of what he wanted to do in building that was to give work to the local stonemasons in off-season. And that project surely fulfilled that purpose for as long as it lasted, but even though McKaig had made provision in his will for the project to be completed... His heirs were not thinking that was a good idea. They say it was a costly boondoggle and wanted nothing to do with it. Went to court and successfully challenged the old man's will. Work stopped right then and there that day. And to this day, McKig's Folly stands as a monument to a dream that's never been realized. Mr. McKig had grand visions for his tower. He thought it would be a lasting monument to his family's name. It would include a museum, an art gallery, a real showplace for that tiny little town. The central tower would display heroic statues, of course, of McCaig himself, his siblings, his parents. That's not how people remember it today. They don't remember the dream he had 
only the disappointing reality of what happened. When tourists ask, what's that thing up there on the hillside, the, the locals gesture at the windows and the lack of a roof, and they sigh and reply, that's McKegg's folly. What do you suppose those of us who leave behind things and what people will say about us as disciples of Jesus Christ? After we've gone on to our reward, will they say, well done, good and faithful servant, or will they say, they lived a life of folly? Sure, Jesus wants to save us. He wants to save us. I mean, that's why he calls, we call him Savior. But it turns out what he wants most is to save us from ourselves. In studying the passage, we can easily get hung up on all the details, but Jesus' word about giving up all of our possessions probably was being overemphasized. It was an extreme statement. He wanted to get their attention. He wants to get our attention. I mean, in other scriptures like the famous lilies of the field, Jesus commends faithful disciples who live as carefree as the birds. I don't know anybody who lives like that. People who neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. These winged creatures depend on God to feed them. Looking at it another way, we're meant to live like the wild lilies, depending upon God. Those flowers spend their whole lives looking to their creator, and we need to do the same thing. We shouldn't live our lives consumed by worry. Don't worry about what you eat or what you drink or what you wear, for your heavenly provider knows you need all these things. I mean, Jesus' statement here in Luke 14 is abrupt. It's harsh. He makes it sound like purging all that we are and all that we have is, is the first step towards discipleship. The Lord's not speaking here as an overachieving tax collector, bound and determined to take every last piece of what we own. In fact, Jesus, of course, doesn't have a lot of kind words for those tax collectors, as you remember. He saw them as government-sanctioned thieves. Yet what Jesus does want from you and I is that we free ourselves of worry, financial and otherwise. He knows how debilitating that drip, drip, drip of our anxiety can be time and time and time again. William Sloan Coffin was a preacher said famously that there are two ways to be rich. One is to have lots of money and the other is to have few needs. Those who are rich in the manner of the lilies of the field keep their needs under control. But for too many of us, our apparent needs continue to grow exponentially in our lives. Our threshold of what constitutes enough continues to expand and grow. It's a sort of soul inflation, if you will. And for many consumers in our culture, it's just a, as much of a curse of daily existence. And there are people who watch the Home Shopping Network 24-7, or at least they try. Those who are truly rich towards God know how to say no to advertising. And they've made it easier, haven't they? Home Shopping Network started it. Just about every other company I know of that I've shopped with has it too. Five easy payments, right? Five easy payments. It's not $847, but you can get it in five easy payments. And you think to yourself, well, that's not too bad, right? 
We need to say no to that kind of advertising. We need to help others say no to that advertising. I mean, if we're going to say no to that kind of stuff, we need to understand that we're not to be like the Joneses. We don't have to keep up with them. When our barn is full, we shouldn't feel the urge to go out and buy and build a bigger one. And if we try to live any other way than that, then we really are living a life of folly. Biblical scholar N.T. Wright gave a hypothetical situation about this passage. He talked about a politician making a stump speech. And this politician would say, vote for me and you'll lose your homes and families. You'll be voting for higher taxes, lower wages. You'll give up everything just for me if you vote for me. And that doesn't sound like a great campaign pitch. How could such a clueless politician ever expect to win a vote by saying those kinds of things? But N.T. Wright changes the scenario. He said, what if instead of a, a politician looking for votes, this was the leader of a mountain climbing expedition asking for volunteers? The task before the climbers is to a risky trek to an isolated village bringing food to people who were starving because they'd been cut off. The leader might say, the dangers are real. We may not make it back alive, but people are starving, so somebody has to do it. So who's with me? Wright says it pays to read these harsh-sounding words of Jesus. It's more like the, the second scenario. Who's with me? Jesus isn't looking for fans. He's recruiting. He's recruiting disciples to do important and necessary, needed work. And there's a huge difference. I mean, Wright suggests that the two images Jesus uses as examples of counting the cost, the, the tower and the battle, have real-life relevance to things that are going on in his own time. I mean, the tower, he suggests, could refer to Herod the Great's ambitious project of constructing a new temple in Jerusalem. That massive public works project carried on in Jesus' own time by Herod the Great's successor had been going on for longer than Jesus or his disciples had been alive. And there seemed to be no end in sight for it. Did Herod truly count the cost before undertaking the work? An untold amount of tax money had already been extorted from the people. And there was no end in sight for that either. In Luke 21, Jesus predicted that one day this magnificent new temple was going to come down. Not one stone would remain upon another. And that did eventually happen. The Romans sacked Jerusalem in the year 70 AD. Along with the towers, there's this battle. We haven't spoken much about Jesus' example of the king who sets out to wage war against another king but fails to conduct a roll call of how many soldiers he has. How many swordsmen, spearmen, archers can he command compared to the troops on the other side? Those are rather important numbers to know. No doubt there was some among Jesus' band of followers who were politically inclined, eager for the people to, of Judea to take up arms against the Romans. What a folly it would be for that tiny nation to mount an armed insurrection against the mightiest and most numerous army in the world. But that, in fact, is what happened in the year 70 A.D., long after Jesus' death and resurrection, as the Jewish people rose up against the oppressors. The Romans would utterly crush the rebel force, and more than that, they reduced Jerusalem to rubble and Herod's temple along with it. 
As the Jewish historian Josephus described, the streets of Jerusalem literally ran red with blood as thousands of men, women, and children died. Poet T.S. Eliot predicted that at the end of our spiritual journey, there will come a day when we shall not cease from exploration and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. A little later, he goes on and says, quick now, here now, always, a condition of complete simplicity, costing nothing less than everything. Nothing less than everything. Once we achieve that God-given simplicity, Elliot assures us, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well, when the tongues of flames are enfolded into the crown knot of fire, and the fire and the rose are one. Truly the gift of ourselves to Jesus, all of me, why not take all of me, Jesus, costs not less than everything. Jesus does want all of me and all of you and everyone else who seeks to follow him. It seems at first glance a, a really high price to pay, doesn't it? But consider what Christ offers in return. All shall be well. All manner of things shall be well. That doesn't mean it be easy. That doesn't mean it will be peaceful. It means we will have a relationship with Jesus Christ in which we will have inner peace to continue to do what we need to do in a world that is struggling to find a way of peace. We're called to offer hope and love and justice in a time like this. You were made, you were made to do just this. And you need to give all of yourself to Christ. All of yourself. All shall be well. Amen. Thank <laughs> you.